Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I do want to invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 11. We are nearing the end of our series in the book of Daniel. Today we are looking at chapter 11. Now, my guess going into it is that most of you have probably not heard a sermon from Daniel chapter 11. One commentator summed up the situation this way. He said, the chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon or for sermons. Well, having read the chapter several times, I understand why someone might say that, but I am going to go ahead and ignore that advice, and you can tell me if I was wrong afterwards. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, Daniel chapter 11 might be difficult to understand, but we do not believe that it is the exception to the truth that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. To use a gym analogy, I liken Daniel chapter 11 to leg day. Now, if you ask most gym goers which day is their least favorite workout day, or at least which day they would be most tempted to skip, most of them will tell you that it is leg day. I mean, most people want to work on their mirror muscles. They want to stand in front of the mirror and rep out a bunch of bicep curls, right? Summer's coming, so sun's out, gun's out, that kind of thing. But you can always tell the people who skip leg day. I mean, they might have bulging biceps, they might have bolder shoulders, but their legs look like they belong on a prepubescent kit, And I think chapters like Daniel 11 are like leg day. Studying a chapter like this is not going to give you the immediate pump that you might crave, but it will help you develop those sort of unseen muscles, the kind of strength that you need when the world looks like it's a puzzling place. So I entitled this message, Game of Thrones. Now, I haven't actually seen the show in case you're wondering, but I've read enough about it to get the gist. My understanding of the basic plot is that there are a lot of rival kingdoms and rival thrones, a lot of individuals vying for positions on those thrones. There's lots of plotting and scheming and violence and gratuitous sex scenes. But the basic idea is a quest for power and supremacy. Daniel chapter 11 reads like a Game of Thrones. This nation and this king rises up only to be deposed by this ruler and his army. There's alliances and intrigue and an ever-changing cast of characters. That's what we meet in Daniel chapter 11. Now, I'll tell you up front, Daniel chapter 11 is 45 verses long, and we are going to cover all of it this morning But we're going to come at it in three sections or three chunks. I'm going to take you through the first 20 verses bit by bit and then make two general observations from those verses. And then we're going to move on to verses 21 to 35. And then we'll wrap things up by looking at verses 36 to 45. So three sections. 
Now, you might remember, as I told you last week, that chapters 10, 11, and the first part of chapter 12 in the book of Daniel are actually just all part of one vision that Daniel had. This chapter is prophecy, but it reads like history. And it reads like history so much and is so specific about things that are to come or that were to come that many liberal commentators think that it couldn't possibly have been written before these things took place. But in any case, let me give you the brief historical sketch of verses 1 to 20. So let's start with verses 1 to 2. It says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. So the first three kings that are mentioned here are sort of also rans, but the fourth king that's mentioned is actually or turned out to be Xerxes or Ahasuerus. We meet him in the book of Esther. He was one who possessed great wealth. He tried to make war against Greece, but despite a massive numerical advantage, his naval fleet was trounced by the Greek navy at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. Verses 3 and 4 go on to say this, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now, the mighty king who was said to arise and rule with great dominion was actually Alexander the Great. He embarked on a major empire expansion, but at his death, his kingdom was passed, as verse 4 indicates, not to his descendants, but actually it was divided up between four of his generals. And two of those generals became the kings of the south, Ptolemy I, and the north, Seleucus I. This was the beginning of two dynasties that would be at war with one another for a long time. It was the beginning of the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt and the Seleucid Empire in Syria. And most of what we have in the remaining verses of this chapter are really the battle that took place between those two nations or those two rival kingdoms. Verses 5 and 6 say, Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times." This is a reference to a marriage alliance that took place between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Ptolemy gave his daughter, Bernice, to Antiochus II. And the understanding was that once they were married, Antiochus, who was already married, would have to put his wife, Laetus, aside. And he did this. He obliged. But once Ptolemy died, Antiochus took his first wife back back. 
And hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. And Antiochus, his first wife, did not take kindly to being deposed. So she poisoned her husband, Antiochus II, and had Bernice and her son liquidated. History is so much fun, isn't it? Verses 7 and 8 say, And from a branch, or and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the kings of the north. So that episode did not sit well with Ptolemy III, who then attacked the north, executed Laodis, and exacted revenge on the Seleucids. Verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And this is a reference to Seleucus II trying to make a run at Egypt, a bit of a power play, but being sent away in defeat. But even that didn't put an end to the conflict. Verses 10 to 12 describe the ongoing conflict. And those verses say, His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So those verses are really just a description of the ongoing back and forth between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. There was a constant battle for supremacy during this period. Verses 13 to 16 says, For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops for those, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So what's described here is really the military success of Antiochus III, the Seleucid king. And the note about him standing in the glorious land is a reference to the land of Israel, which is now or was then under Seleucid control. Verse 17. Hang with me here. Verse 17 says this. I do have glasses. I'm just trying to find it. It says, uh, afterward, he shall, st- he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. That's not 17. Let me just keep reading from 16. I'm sure I'll hit it. But he be who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Now 17. He shall... St- set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom 
and shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And what's happening in verse 17, the daughter of women that is referred to there is Cleopatra the first. So that might be a name that you recognize. The Cleopatra you know, this is her great, great, great grandmother. Cleopatra I was the daughter of Antiochus III. He gave her in marriage to Ptolemy as a way to ensure Seleucid control and influence in Egypt. But things didn't go as planned because Cleopatra developed Egyptian sympathies. And when push came to shove, she sided with her Egyptian husband rather than her Seleucid father. Verses 18 and 19. It says, afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So Antiochus III enjoyed some military success, but eventually he fell when he tried to invade Greece despite being warned by the Romans. And then verse 20, the last verse we're going to look at in this section, says, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in Battle, And that's a reference to the short-lived reign of Seleucus IV. And when it says he'll be broken neither in anger nor in battle, it's because he was poisoned. So you might be saying at this point, well, look, that's mildly interesting and all, but what possible relevance could all of that have to do with me and my life? I can see how maybe it's relevant or maybe it was relevant for the generations that came immediately after Daniel. But how does it affect me? How should I think about this? So let me just point out two things that we ought to observe about this history. The first one is the focus of history. The focus of biblical history is fascinating to me. Now, Daniel chapter 11 intersects with what we might call secular history in a significant way. One scholar noted that Daniel 11 refers in a specific, identifiable way to 13 of the 16 rulers between these two kingdoms, between 322 and 163 BC. But that's not actually what I find so fascinating. What I find most fascinating is where the emphasis gets placed. So what do I mean by that? Well, of all the names I read and highlighted for you, the one that most of you have probably heard of would be Alexander the Great. I mean, he's called the Great for a reason. Alexander came to the throne at the age of 20. He carried out one of the most successful military campaigns. He created one of the largest empires in world history. It stretched all the way from Greece to northwestern India. He was a big-time figure. But here, he's barely given a mention, right? There's two verses that deal with Alexander, just 27 words. Far more is said about some of the small-time players, and much more will be said about Antiochus IV in verses 21 to 35, who, from a broader historical perspective, was actually just a small-time player, just sort of a two-bit ruler. So why is that? Why does all the attention focus on Antiochus and his reign? 
And I think the reason is because the only thing that really matters about Alexander the Great is how he he interacted with God's people. And this is not the only time we see something like this. I've been reading through the Gospel of Luke for my devotions lately, and I'm reading a short commentary alongside of it as a bit of a companion. Listen to this excerpt from the beginning of Luke chapter 3, where it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And here's the the, the note from the commentary. In Luke 3, verses 1 and 2, the evangelist seems, or almost seems, guilty of overkill. He runs through Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas, and then comes to what matters. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. It's as if Luke says, the big news is that the word of God came to the people of God. All the name dropping was just background. And this is what I mean by the focus of history. The focus of history is not on those events that we might be tempted to think are the focus. This is what draws our attention. The focus of history is always on the Lord and on his people. Now, I'm not suggesting that what is happening in the world is insignificant, but that the story behind the headlines is often far more important. There's a scene in the original Men in Black movie where Agent K is showing new recruit Agent J where to find hot tips on alien activity. It's a science fiction movie if you haven't seen it. They stop at a newsstand and Agent K starts examining the supermarket tabloids. Agent J is incredulous. These are the hot sheets. Agent J responds with best investigative reporting on the planet. Go ahead and read the New York Times if you want to. They get lucky sometimes. He then produces a tabloid with a front page story about a terrified farm wife who says an alien stole her husband's skin. Again, I'm not suggesting that we should get our news from the supermarket tabloids. What I am saying is that as Christians, we actually read the news differently. We view history differently. What ultimately matters is what the Lord is doing and what's happening to God's people. See, what I'm interested in right now, for instance, is how the church responds in the midst of the situation we find ourselves in. How does the church emerge from COVID? How do we respond? Are we demonstrating love? Are we projecting fear? Are we unified? Are we still on mission? Or are we just wrapped up in the headlines? So the focus of history. Second thing we learn about in Daniel 11 is the futility of history. See, we, get to, we tend to get really focused on our own narrow slice of history. But sometimes it's good just to take a step back and look at the broader picture. 
the longer time frame. This passage covers almost 400 years of world history. And what do we learn when we take it all in? Well, I know that in the past, I've gotten pretty good mileage out of telling you that I, at some point, want to write a book about the big butts in the Bible, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, that sort of thing. Now, when we read Daniel chapter 11, we ought to pay attention to all the little buts. I think you'll get the most out of this if you follow along in your Bibles as I read through it. Verse 4 speaks about Alexander the Great, and it says this, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Right? He doesn't get to pass it on to who he wants to pass it on to. Verse 6 refers to the alliance formed between Ptolemy Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. And notice what it says in verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughters of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. Verse 9 refers to Seleucus II's attempt to invade Egypt. And the verse ends with these words, but shall return to his own land. Verse 14 says, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Verse 17 refers to another attempted marriage alliance, and the second half of that verse says, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Things don't work the way he planned. Verses 18, 19, and 20 each have their own but. Verse 18 says, Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands, shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Verse 19, Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but... Within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Now, if you were trying to summarize this entire section of, as I said, almost 400 years of world history, you would have to conclude that it, is, it was a seemingly endless series of wars, alliances, and betrayals that never actually get anywhere. I found these comments from Ian Duguid helpful. He said, The balance of power ebbs back and forth between the two superpowers. But for all their vast efforts and the vast expenditure of lives and wealth, neither one of these superpowers is able to conquer the other. Nor are they able to live in peace with one another. Their best efforts to forge a unity through politically motivated marriage unions and other strategies are equally unsuccessful. This is what happens. He went on to say this. This this summary gives us a profound perspective on history. On one level, it is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars as one human empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Yet though the tide in the affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent Rest. 
And then he says, on the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all their toil? And the answer is nothing. See, there is a futility that is built into history. That doesn't mean that political leaders are inconsequential and that their decisions don't affect others. They often do. It does mean that every attempt to build utopia here will fail. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that God subjected creation to futility. And I think that futility extends to all aspects, including our governmental systems. This is why we will never experience the kind of peace and rest and stability that we all long for until we experience it in heaven. No kingdom of man can achieve what belongs to us in the kingdom of God. That's the futility of history. Now, a third thing we can observe here is the ferocity of history. Well, what do I mean by that? This is what we see in verses 21 to 35. So let me read those verses. And this section is taken up with Antiochus IV. It says, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant and shall work his will and return to his own land at the time appointed. He shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take, a, take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword, by flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them in flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. 
So the action slows down, but the intensity ratchets up in this section. The first 20 verses cover a period from about 530 BC to 175 BC. These verses deal with the reign of just one ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And the verses can really be divided into three sections. Verses 21 to 24 tell us about the the way that Antiochus ascended to the throne, about his early military success. He becomes strong with a small people or a small number of people. But despite the size of his army, he inflicts great damage. Verse 22 describes it as armies being utterly swept away and broken. Antiochus was a man and a commander who knew no mercy. He wasn't the first and certainly not the last ruler in history who operated this way. This is what I mean by describing this as the ferocity of history. History is littered with examples of emperors and empires that left a bloody mess in their wake. Genocide, Holocaust, ethnic cleansing. Those are just some of the terms that we have come to associate with world history. There's a ferociousness to it. Verses 25 to 29 then go on to describe where Antiochus was unsuccessful in his military campaigns. He tries to invade Egypt, but is turned back. What's interesting, though, is what he does in response to that. Listen again to verse 30. This is after he's defeated or turned back by the Egyptians. It says, For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged... And take action against the Holy Covenant. See, what Antiochus did in his defeat is he turned his vengeance and his anger towards the Jews. Verse 31 then goes on to say and tell us exactly how he did that. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So he defiles the temple, puts an end to the sacrifices that the Jews would have made there. And the record of history shows that Antiochus was a fierce persecutor of the Jews. The verses go on to describe how he persecuted the Jews by sword, by flame, and by captivity. And again, we know he was not the last to adopt this tactic. God's people are often in peril. And they're often in peril because of persecution, like the persecution the Jews experienced under Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we don't have much experience with this in the West, but so many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. Here are some stats from a ministry called Open Doors, which works, works with the persecuted church. More than 250 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In 2020, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,448 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, or imprisoned. History can be brutal and especially so for God's people. But again, the point is not just to know the ferocity of history. There are two things we ought to understand from this history. The first one is 
that God has set limits on what can happen. Speaking of Antiochus, the end of verse 24 says, He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. See, there is a time limit that is set on every earthly ruler. Verse 27 speaks of two kings who will oppose Antiochus but won't be able to stop him. And the end of that verse says they they shall speak lies at the same table but to no avail for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. There is an appointed time where that kind of persecution will come to an end. And this section ends in verse 35 by saying, And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. There is an appointed time for everything. God sets limits in time and space. Paul said it this way in his sermon in Athens. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and life and breath and everything. And then it says, and, from, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted places and the boundaries, or allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So there is a limit that is set against any ruler. Nothing happens that's outside of God's sovereignty. There's another thing for us to know about the ferocity of history, and that is that we are able to withstand it. So how do we withstand all of this pressure? How do you withstand persecution? Well, we remain faithful. Verse 32 says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So how do we take action? Well, I think verse 33 gives us a clue. It says that the wise among the people shall make many understand. Right? They pass on the truth that has been revealed to them by God. This is what happened in the early church. The early church experienced intense persecution, but everywhere they were scattered, they passed on the truth of the gospel as they went. See, this speaks to the importance of teaching and passing on to the next generation the truths of the gospel. Look, every one of us ought to be involved in this. But since it's Mother's Day, can I just say a special word to moms? And that is simply that your labor is not in vain. That time that you spend reading the Bible with your kids, praying with them, modeling for them what it means to walk with Jesus, teaching them about God's love and his faithfulness is not a wasted effort. This is what the wise do. They pass this on. So their children are able to withstand the pressure of culture. So Daniel's vision describes dark days for God's people, but there is a sliver of hope. And the hope is that there is a remnant who remains faithful, who resists the pressure. Read through church history and this is what you will discover. It's not evil. It's not easy. Daniel even says that some of the wise will stumble, but he says that all of the suffering that they go through is part of a refining process. 
Final thing we learn in Daniel chapter 11 is about the future of history. Now, I know that's a bit of an oxymoron because history refers to something that has taken place. The future refers to something that is yet to take place. Let me explain what I mean. Let me read verses 36 to 45 for you. It says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against God, the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall lead with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to devour many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain yet he shall come to his end with none to help him so listen i take verses 36 to 45 to be a description not of antiochus epiphanes but of one who comes later and is like him. Now, that might not be obvious when you first read it, but the end of verse 35 seems to indicate the end of Antiochus. When it says the end will come at the appointed time. So, verses 36 and 37 speak of this king exalting himself above every god, rejecting the god of his fathers, worshipping an unknown god, but the record of history shows otherwise about Antiochus. Scholars of all stripes are united by saying that Antiochus did not exalt himself above every god. He did not reject the god of his fathers or worship a god unknown to his fathers. On the contrary, he worshipped the Greek pantheon, even built an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple precincts. So it could be that maybe these verses are speaking with hyperbole about Antiochus. He's such an ungodly ruler. It's his arrogance. The passage contains a number of other things that were not true of Antiochus. He did not, for instance, extend his power over many countries. He did not die when he pitched his tent between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, as verse 45 says. So what are we to make of all that? Well, verse 40 indicates that what we're looking at here is actually the time of the end. So I think the end of this chapter is directing us towards what will take place at the end of time. A leader will arise and exalt himself above every God. He will defile all that is holy. He will make war against God's people. This is the one the New Testament refers to as the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. 
Paul says it this way, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. I think Daniel 11 functions in much the same way as Mark 13 and Matthew 24 function. I know a number of you went through Mark 13 in men's and women's Bible studies recently. Those chapters refer both to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and also to events beyond that destruction that will take place at the end of time. History will not come to its conclusion until a ruler who comes and arises like Antiochus Epiphanes. But where's the good news in all of this? You know, I would just say this, that we sometimes say that all good things must come to an end. These verses remind us that all bad things also come to an end. And verse 45 tells us what will happen at the very end of time. This is the future destination of history. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Okay, so what is the point of all this? I mean, maybe you're saying like the commentator, I'm still not sure how Daniel 11 is good for a sermon or sermons. Well, in one sense, Daniel 11 teaches us about the focus of history and the ferocity of history and the futility of history and the future of history. That's great, but what does that mean for us living in the here and now? Well, I think one of the big takeaways should be the the reminder that God is not a passive spectator when it comes to what's happening in the world. He's not sort of sitting on the sidelines. God is actively involved in the affairs of men or in the affairs of the world. A couple of years back, we went through the book of Habakkuk as a church. And if you know the story, then you know Habakkuk was a prophet who had lots of questions for God. He looked at his world. He wondered what was going on. What was God going to do about it? And God answered his questions. Essentially, what God said to Habakkuk is what he says to us. What God said to Habakkuk was, I have done something. I am doing something. And I will do something. And as we look at Our world, as we look at world history, we ought to understand that same thing. As we look to the past, we should understand that God has done something. As we live in the present, we should know that God is doing something. And as we look to the future, we should know that God will do something. Everything will be made right. So let's live with that kind of gospel hope and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your grace that has been shed upon us. We think of all the different time periods that people have lived, have experienced different things and different realities in their world. God, we think of our own situation and we know that you are in control, that you are sovereign over all. And Lord, we know that you are at work in the midst of this time. So we pray that we would have that kind of confidence, that kind of hope, and that even as we look towards the future, we would know that you have a plan and a purpose in all things and that all things will be made right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.